Welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. My name is Andrew, and if you are new here with us, I am so excited to have you. And I just want to start off by letting you know our heart's desire is to see you move from being a guest or a spectator with us to being part of our family. And there's a simple way that you can get started on that process, and that is by texting your name to the number you see right here on the screen below me. Uh, what that does is it gives us a point of contact, and then we can let you know what some of those next steps might be. And another way that you can do that is by uh, just typing in the chat bar and whichever platform you are following us on, hey, I want to get connected and someone from our team will be uh, happy to, to follow up with you. Um, if you haven't been with us over the last little bit, you may not know this, but we have jumped back into the book of Matthew, which I am so excited about. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to dive right in. We got a lot to cover today. So you can open them up to Matthew and we're going to be in chapter 17, verse 14. And I'm just going to dive right in here. It says this, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. All right, so I, I do want to stop here for a second, because if you are not tracking with us week to week, this might be something that you're like, who are they talking about? Who is this they? Where did they come from? Why are they there? So last week, Matt led us through uh, the first part of Matthew chapter 17, in which Jesus goes up to this mountain. And he takes with him three of his followers, three of his disciples, and they go up and, and they have this incredible experience. And it says that Jesus is transfigured, that he's revealed as God in all of his glory, that Moses and Elijah appear, two famous biblical figures, uh, affirming that Jesus is indeed, Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of both the law, which uh, is attributed to Moses, and the prophets, which, of which um, of which uh, Elisha is one. And then God, the father speaks over him and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased in whom I love, obey everything that he has to say. So there's this incredible mountaintop, spiritual God glorifying experience. And then they leave the mountaintop and they come down to where the rest of the disciples are. And it's like, boom, real life hits. There is a crowd of people and they have needs and they're waiting for Jesus to come and heal them. And one of the gentlemen in this crowd comes to Jesus and falls down. And he falls down in this posture of respect or maybe even worship. And listen to what he says to Jesus. Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Uh, listen to what Jesus says next, though. This, is, this is, uh, should astound us and maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable. Jesus looks around at his disciples, and this is what he says to them. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. Okay, wait a second. So before it was seizures, but now it's a demon. Okay, okay. And it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Uh, one of the things that I learned in college is just a way to honor this as God's word is for me to say as the speaker, this is the word of the Lord. And for you at home to join with me as I say, thanks be to God. So 
at first glance, this passage is actually a little bit confusing. There's some things here that just don't seem to add up. I mean, first of all, we have Jesus coming along down to the mountain and his disciples, who we know from earlier passages in Matthew, have been empowered with his authority to cast out demons and heal sick people, can't seem to do that with this man's son. You know, if you're tracking with the book of Matthew, this should be like a, uh-oh, this is weird. This is weird. What's going on here? There must be something wrong. And then it's further uh, made confusing by Jesus' response to the disciples. And he looks at them in the crowds and he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. And I think if, you know, if we just read this at a surface level without understanding how it fits into the biblical story as a whole, there's going to be a whole lot of things that we misinterpret or we miss. But here's the thing. We talk about this a lot. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four guys who wrote the gospel accounts, the accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, they're not writing in isolation. They're writing with the whole view of the Old Testament scripture in mind. And they're writing, showing us in how they write that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And the way that they often do this is by organizing their scenes in such a way that you can see how Jesus is the better uh, of someone in the, the Old Testament or how he's the fulfillment of a promise in the Old Testament. That's why Matthew says things like this was to fulfill all the time. But they don't just do that explicitly. They also do that implicitly. They do that by showing you scenes that remind you of something else. And so if you're tracking with the Old Testament as most of Matthew's original readers would have done, when you hear this story about Jesus going up on the mountain, having this incredible encounter with God and then coming down and the people that he's coming down to are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Triggers are going off in your head and you're thinking, oh, I know this story. I know this story. This is the story of Moses. You see, if you're familiar with the story of Moses, Moses is God's appointed leader. He leads the people out of slavery in the power of God to meet with him at this mountain. And Moses goes up to the mountain and he encounters God and God gives him his laws and his statutes and says, hey, I want to adopt this people as my family. Like they're my treasured possession. And Moses comes down from the mountain. What are the people of Israel doing? They're like, well, we, didn't, we, we forgot about that God. And so uh, we, we didn't know where you had gone. So we just decided to make a God for ourselves. We boiled down all of our gold. We smelted it and, and out came this calf. And we decided to worship that. Now, this is going to inform for us then how we see the rest of the passage. In fact, this is made even more explicit by what Jesus says to his disciples. He calls them a perverse generation, an unbelieving and perverse generation. That language is not just language unique to Jesus. He's actually taking language directly out of Moses' mouth. Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses has this incredible prayer for the people of Israel. It's super long, but so, so good. And he essentially says in the prayer, man, God's come. He's shown you how good he is. He's rescued you and redeemed you out of slavery to Egypt. And you should worship him. But here's the thing, you're not going to do it. And he calls the people of Israel a perverse generation in chapter uh, 32 verse 20. Jesus is quoting that and he's saying, hey, disciples, you know that thing that was going on with Israel where they were worshiping other gods, where they were falling into idolatry, where they were looking at something else other than God to fulfill them, to provide for them, 
to be the object of their affection and their worship? Well, you're doing that. And the question we probably need to ask ourselves is how? Because there's no golden statues here. There's no evidence that they've built altars and are starting to worship something else. So what's happening? Well, I'm going to pack, unpack for you in a second uh, what I believe is going on here uh, uh, or how I, how I get to where I believe is going on here. But I just want to start off by saying this. I, I think what's happening is the disciples, they are looking around and they're saying, okay, here's an issue of brokenness in our world. This guy brings his son to us and this son clearly needs some help. But instead of trusting in Jesus as the source of their authority and power, they lose sight of him and they start looking to themselves to start thinking, well, we can do this on our own. Jesus is great, but he's away right now. So we got to figure this out for ourselves. And functionally, they've done exactly the same thing as Israel. They haven't erected a golden calf, but they started to worship their own ability. And the reality is, is this isn't just unique to the disciples. It's not just unique to the Israelites. This is exactly what humans have been doing since Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we talk about this all the time, but it's because it's so fundamental to how we understand the biblical story. Adam and Eve, first people created, created in God's image to bring about his rule and reign and to bring perfect, the, the biblical word, the Hebrew word is shalom. And shalom means peace and completeness and order. It's utopia. Their job is to continue to shape and form the world to its perfect functionality. And along comes this snake. And he says, hey, you know, God's told you to trust him in, in this process of bringing about shalom, of bringing about perfection, of bringing about flourishing. But you know what? You could probably do a better job by yourself, but you got to unhinge yourself from this shackle to God's will. That tree over there, that's the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And God knows that if you take it, you're going to be like him. You can choose. You can create your own utopia. You can figure out how to maximize flourishing. And Adam, you think, okay, that's great. I'm going to do that. And what do they do? They go over and they take the fruit. This is what's happening right here by the disciples, but this is what happens all the time in our culture. Mark Sayers is a, a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. He's a bit of a cultural guru. He wrote a fantastic book. If you, uh, if you have a few minutes, I highly recommend get on Amazon, pick it up. It's called Disappearing Church. It'll help you understand where we are as a Western society right now. In the book, he contends that what's happened in our culture is that we have fundamentally moved from being a Christian society or a society ruled by uh, Christian ideals and ethics to being what he calls a post-Christian society. But he, he makes a pretty important distinction here because a lot of people think as we move towards what we call secularism or the, the moving away from Christianity in our society, we often think that we're going back to sort of this pre-Christian era, this pagan society. He says that's not true. You see, what's happened here is that in our society, the values of Christianity are still, for the most part, upheld. And you may be like, no, they're not. There are some areas, of course, where that has changed, sexual ethics, things like that. But think about it. What are social justice warriors trying to do? They're trying to bring about unity and equality 
and the freedom of individuals. Where do those ethics come from? They didn't come from pre-Christian Rome. They didn't come from pagan societies. Vikings didn't give a, a hoot about equality, about personal freedom, about justice for the little guy. Oh, that came from Christianity. And what Sayers contends is that what we now live in is a culture that has this Christian view of how the world should be at least corrupted, uh, but, but it stems from core Christian ideals. And yet, they want to bring that about in their own power and their own strength. And the way he phrases it, he says, they want the kingdom without the king. They want the power without the presence. And I want to share with you just one quote that I think will help us understand this better. Sayer says this, Therefore, the final checkmate of this secularist coup is accomplished not by a frontal assault on theology, but by a practical atheism that offers the fruit of shalom minus the tree of biblical faith that bore it. So what he's saying is, this isn't uh, an attack on Christian belief. This isn't an attack on, uh, on our philosophy. This is an undermining of it. It's an undermining of it because it offers this idea of heaven, but it says you can do that without a reliance on Jesus. He continues on and says this, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant, the massager of the personal will. And so what he, he concludes is he says that what's happened is not that everyone's become an atheist. Not everyone is a Richard Dawkins subscribing fundamentalist atheist that says, hey, you have to completely divest yourself of all belief. In fact, if you go throughout the city of Victoria, if you go out through the country of Canada, the vast majority of people still believe in some form of God. Now, it might not be the monotheistic uh, Christian God of the Bible, uh, but there is some belief in a higher power or in a God or in a spiritual being but what's so intriguing and what's so, uh, so dangerous about the way that our culture has done this. So they said, okay, you can believe in God. That's great. But God now becomes rather than the Lord of your life who actually declares and demands how you live and who you have to submit to in obedience. He becomes your therapeutic sidekick. When you're thinking, man, I want to live my best life now. What's God's job? To help you do it. When you're thinking, man, I want pleasure and prosperity. What's God's job? It's there to help him do it. When you're having a bad day, who's your good pick-me-up? God. C.S. Lewis wrote in... <clears throat> sorry, not C.S. Lewis. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller. Man, I'm getting all my, my authors mixed up. Tim Keller uh, once said in a sermon... Um, and I'll paraphrase this, but he said, if your God never disagrees with you, chances are you've made him up in your head. If your God never disagrees with you, chances are you made him up in your head. You see, if God is our supreme authority, if we are fallible human beings, that means that there will come times when our God says, hey, you need to change. 
You need to align yourself with me. If your God's always aligning himself with you, then the reality is, is that he's probably made up. And that's not the real God. And disciples didn't forget that Jesus was there. I and mean, they knew he was up on the mountain. They just kind of forgot that they needed him. So I want to take a step back here for a minute, and I'm going to dive back into this in a second, but I want to give us a little bit of a contrast to the disciples, because I think this is really important. You see, right next to the disciples is this character of the Father. His Father comes, and His posture is so different than what we, we can see in the disciples. You see, the Father's posture is one of submission. He comes to Jesus, the source and power that can actually heal his son. And what does he do? He falls down on his knees. And listen to what he says. Lord, Lord, master, king, someone who is above me. It's a a title of respect, but also a title of submission. Lord, have mercy on my son. See, unlike the disciples, unlike the people that Jesus was constantly preaching to, who were trying to figure it out in their own strength and their own ability, here's a man who recognizes his complete and utter inability. And what does he do? He goes to the only one who is actually able and he falls down on his knees and calls out for mercy. And it's in this posture that Jesus' power can actually be worked through us. And I don't want you to miss this because this is, this, is, this is really amazing. See, this man is, is not even just doing this for himself, but he's also advocating for someone who cannot advocate for themselves. You see, the son, at first when you read this, especially uh, in the NIV translation, you, you probably get this idea that what's going on with this son is that he has epilepsy. But the thing is, is that the word used here is not the common word used for epilepsy. Uh, we sometimes think that, you know, pre-modern uh, cultures, like they didn't really know what was going on. And so everything got spiritualized. And so they thought it was a demon, but probably it was just a disease. But they, they knew what epilepsy was. They had a word for it. And the word they use is not the word for epilepsy. It's what the NIV translates, seizures. But that word literally means someone who's affected by the moon. So Werewolf? No, of course not. But it was a common way of saying a crazy person. And then they go on to describe, the father goes on to describe exactly how this disease or how this possession affects his son. And it's clear that this is not simply something random, that this happens in a way that is meant to see his son harmed or destroyed. When do these fits take him? When he's near a fire or near the water? Uh, Sometimes I think, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, but in our modern context, we forget that the Bible makes it clear that the physical is not all there is. What's going on inside of us is not always or not exclusively chemical realities. That there is a spiritual realm that desires our deep and utter destruction. The, the term that the Bible often uses to describe what hell is like is, is fire. 
And I think sometimes we have this sort of medieval notion of hell as this place of like being roasted over a spit, you know, and, and we think of hell as like physical pain. Uh, but I think that if we, we really look at the imagery of fire, there's something even more subtle to it. C.S. Lewis, uh, now I'm at C.S. Lewis, we got there finally. C.S. Lewis wrote this uh, book on hell and he calls it The Great Divorce. And he, he starts to fill this concept of what fire really does. You see, if you watch what a fire does, you, you, you watch how it burns. What, what does it do? It slowly disintegrates the item that it is burning. And what C.S. Lewis contends in The Great Divorce is that this is exactly what hell is. And the example he uses is this. And again, I'm paraphrasing here. It says, imagine that you're someone with a grumble. It's this sinful character trait. It's like you chronically complain about things. It said, what hell is like, is like you go to this, this, this realm and slowly you get stripped away till all that's left is the grumble. What do the powers of Satan want to do? They want to strip anything that is of God, anything that is of the author of life away from us to all that's left is our sin. And we see this. We see this in contemporary examples. You see this in addictions. When someone is so ravaged by this external reality that all that is left is a negative, the bad choices, the anger, the frustration. You see this in mental health. You see this when people fall into this place of personality defect that consumes them or isolation that consumes them. And the Bible makes it clear that Satan delights in this reality. He desires to see us experience hell on earth. And it comes to a point where we're completely consumed and we've lost control. And this is the place that this man's son is in. He has completely lost control. And the father, what does he do? He comes and he goes to the only one, the only solution, and he advocates for his son. And there's an example in us as followers of Jesus that we too are called to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. But this is not just something that we do because we saw it here in the example of the Father. Ultimately, it's something we do because Jesus is the ultimate advocate for us. This man is just a foreshadow, a picture of what's going to happen only a few chapters later when Jesus goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our brokenness, for our sin. We are like the Son. We may not be physically controlled But the Bible makes it clear that we were dead in our trespasses, that we were enslaved to our sin. If someone out here watching, if you do not yet know Jesus, you are incapable of coming into the life that he has for you. I was there. Every single person who's been freed by Jesus was there. We couldn't even get ourselves to submit to him. He had to come and actually give us a new heart. And because we have a father 
who listens to Jesus as our advocate and as Jesus speaks a better word over us. And in fact, we have a Holy Spirit who, who Jesus called the advocate, who comes and advocates on our behalf. Now we too have been empowered to advocate for those who cannot advocate for themselves. And so church, I implore you, I beg you, look around. Who are those people who need to be advocated for? Maybe it's a family member who does not yet know Jesus. And you're frustrated and you're thinking, man, they're just under control. And it's true. They can't even make the choice to follow him without Jesus's direct intervention. Do you have the posture of falling before Jesus and saying, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy. The opposite, again, of this posture is one where we try and step into the gap and we try and bring about transformation all in our own power. And let me make this clear. Sometimes that transformation is not a bad thing. We recognize the right direction that things are supposed to go. The problem is is that we're trusting in our own power to do that. We're worshiping our own abilities, our own selves. And here's how I know that this is what's going on with the disciples. They come to him, verse 19, and they ask, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, because you have so little faith. Uh, When you hear that term little, I think our, our tendency, our proclivity is to think about faith as sort of this like uh, reservoir. And you know, if you, if you fill your reservoir up to a certain point, then Jesus can act. But you're down at like 10% and you got to get your way up to 50%. It's like those Christmas movies uh, where Santa can't work because people don't believe in him anymore. And so uh, someone's got to come and restore their belief so that his sleigh can fly and he can deliver presents. We have sort of this Santa Claus view of Jesus that he relies on our amount of faith to work, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not talking about the amount of faith that the disciples are are putting in him. He's talking about the object of the faith. He's saying, you are trusting in your own abilities to accomplish this. That's little, that's small. That's not gonna do anything because you are not capable. I've used this analogy before, but if you step onto an ice that is solid, It doesn't matter whether you believe it's going to hold you up a little or a lot. If it's solid, it's going to hold you up. But you could believe with all your heart that thin ice is going to hold you up. But if you step out on it, it's going to fall. And Jesus is saying, you're believing with all your heart in thin ice. And that's why you can't heal this boy. He continues on, he says, Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. When Jesus used the, the image of a mustard seed, what, what he's doing is he's, he's, he's taking the object that in popular thought would have been seen as the smallest object. So if I were to kind of translate this into modern day language, I'd say like an atom or a new, neutron or an electron or something like that. You think of the smallest scientific object you can think of. And Jesus is saying, man, you don't even have that amount of faith. That's a functional way of saying you don't have faith in me at all. 
saying if, if you had even an ounce of faith, if you had even a neutron's worth of faith, man, you could do anything. Now, again, I want to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying here and not impose on him something that he's not saying. He says, you can call this mountain to move from here to there. Jesus is using a a figure of speech. Uh, It's not like I go up to Mount Washington and say, hey, I I want to snowboard uh, a little bit closer to home. So uh, Mount Washington, I want you to move over into the middle of the Sioux Hills. Like maybe Duncan area, that'd be a good spot. Sometimes I think we hear that Jesus is saying nothing will be impossible and and we start to think, oh, that means that, you know, if I just have faith in Jesus that I can do whatever I want. But Jesus is not talking about doing whatever you want. He's actually referring to being able to have access to God's power and God's authority to accomplish God's purposes. When he says nothing will be impossible for you, again, that's a phrase that's saturated in the biblical narrative. Uh, Just one example, if you go back to Genesis chapter 18, God comes to Abraham, the father of the Israelite people, and he is super old and his wife is as old as well. She's gone through menopause. Her womb is what they would say in, in their culture is dead. And God comes and says, hey, by this woman, Abraham, you're like 90 years old. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you the father of many nations. This woman's going to have a baby. And they're like, God, that's impossible. Like, this ain't working anymore. And God says, nothing is impossible. When Jesus is saying, nothing will be impossible for us, what he's saying is, God's purposes will be accomplished by his power through you with faith in me. You know, the disciples could have cast out this demon. But they placed their trust in their own ability. They took their eyes off of Jesus. They started to worship something else. And so what Matthew wants us to see here is that the fundamental problem of this generation was their idolatry. And their idolatry is offensive to God. Their idolatry has to be dealt with. Jesus looks around and he says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Again, that seems so out of character for Jesus, the Jesus who loves us, who cares for us. But that language, that how long phrase is again saturated in the prophets, in the Psalms as God pleads with his people to change. How long will you chase after other gods? How long will you trust in something else other than me? How long will I put up with you? If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you for a moment to turn with me back to that first passage that we talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this song of Moses. After talking about all the ways that Israel has failed, Moses is going to talk about how God brings everything together in his own act of faithfulness. And he talks about this final judgment that God's going to bring on the people who choose to turn away from him, who choose to reject him, who choose to rebel against him. But then in verse 43, 
He says this, and it doesn't seem to match. He says, Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and for his people. Church, I want to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 22 and chapter 23. And those passages, that passage is not placed after this one accidentally. Because in it, Jesus is going to explain that he has to go to the cross and that he has to die. And what Deuteronomy tells us is that God's justice will be accomplished. His vengeance will come upon those who have chosen to disregard his call on their life who have chose to rebel against him, to chose to cosmically flip him the bird. And yet the way that he does that, the way that his justice is fulfilled, is that Jesus goes and lives the perfect life that we ought to live and yet dies the death, takes the full wrath of God upon himself. Jesus accomplishes what we cannot, and in that, and only in that, is the ability for the atonement for us and for our land made. And so when we go around and we think, hey, I can try and fix the world in my own strength, by my own means, by my own power, by my own strategizing, we completely miss the gospel. I read an article this week in The Atlantic. Uh, It's a little political, so for those of you who are uncomfortable with political things or hold vastly different political opinions than this article, uh, just bear with me because I think it's it's helpful. Uh, This guy, I don't believe he's a Christian. He's writing The Atlantic, and, and he's commenting on something that he's noticed in American society. And in particular, he's talking about the Trump presidency. And he says, you know, there's something that's happened as uh, mainstream evangelical culture has somewhat aligned themselves to the person of Donald Trump. And they've done so sort of holding their nose. You know, there's a lot of things that Donald Trump does that are uncomfortable. Uh, He's lived a immoral life. He's shown complete disregard for others. He puts himself first continually, time and time and time again. In fact, he even uses faith for his own means. He's a man who brings about a continual amount of political disunity as he accentuates not differences and, and tries not to and doesn't try and build unity. There's a lot of ways that Donald Trump leads that just do not smell of Jesus at all. Uh, this man contends that this is the case. He says, "But here's how Christians sort of assuage their consciences, consciences. But Gorsuch, but Kavanaugh." but Supreme Court justices. Now, you may have a variety of opinions on this, but I think there is something that is true here. If Jesus came down today and spoke to mainstream evangelical culture in America, would he look at them and say, you perverse generation? you've been worshiping yourselves and your own ability instead of falling at my knees and saying, Lord, 
have mercy. Maybe you're someone who's on the opposite side of the political spectrum and you've been protesting and trying to make systemic change by erasing the brokenness of our past and trying to make amends and trying to eradicate anyone who reminds us of our brokenness, any opinion that differentiates from us. And Jesus comes to you. He says, are you trying to do this in your own strength, by your own power? You're part of that perverse generation. Your call is to fall at my feet and say, Lord, have mercy. In church, as we look at our own lives, the way that we parent our kids, the way that we try and reshape our, our, our own parents, the way that we interact with our spouse or with our friends or with our neighbors, maybe even the way that we do some of the things that we talk about all the time at West Village, being on mission. Do we try and force things in our own strength and by our own power? Uh, the way that you'll know it is how you respond when things just don't work. Are you devastated? Or do you go and fall back at the knees of Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I want to finish off by sharing one last quote from Mark Sayer's book, Disappearing Church. I think it's helpful for us. He says this, the post-Christian revolution, so our modern current cultural reality is a kind of Christian revolution minus Christ. It's a kind of thing that, again, tries to bring about the kingdom without the king. And this is what it looks like. He says, it's the kind of revolution without Christ in which the enemy is always the other, in which we look at external realities and blame them for why the world is not the way it should be. In which justice is always sought externally. However, in contrast to that, the Christian revolution demanded the death of the king. But not the king that sat in the palace. Rather, it demanded the death of the kings and queens who ate of the fruit in the garden. Remember Genesis chapter 3 that we talked about earlier. It demanded that of us, of you and of me. However, at the height of the revolution, the only good king, the only monarch who ruled with justice and righteousness, who did not deserve to be toppled, allowed himself to be executed so that we, with all our pretenses of royalty, would not have to die for our unjust rule. Family, the invitation today is an invitation of submission. And in that act of submission, the invitation is to be transformed and so that we too can become advocates. 
And only in that process of our own hum- humiliation, our own humbling, our own recognition of our own incapacity to bring about this good, creative restoration, can we actually be useful instruments in seeing people transformed? Let me pray. Father, I know my tendency is so often to set up golden calves, whether that's my own comfort where I'm trying to figure out how to make my own world perfect, whether that's people that I look to, whether that's political systems that I jump on board with. And yet, I thank you that even in this state of continual rebellion where I am so enraptured to my sinfulness that you came into my heart and into my life and that you advocated for me. And Father, my prayer is that you would continue to humble us as a church. And as you do so, that we would continue to grow in the knowledge of the gospel and throw ourselves at your mercy and have you transform us so that we can be useful instruments in your hand as you continue to build your kingdom as the king. I pray these things in your name. Amen.